The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Just a reminder that you can get an ad-free version of this podcast by becoming a supporter of Lawfare's Patreon at patreon.com/lawfare. That's patreon.com/lawfare. You also get other goodies as a member of our Patreon Supporters Club, including access to Lawfare Live events weekly. So come join our Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare. The decision here to punt for two years and to explicitly punt for two years in a way that's going to have them set them up to, by design, be continuously reevaluating whether or not he's you know, deserving of these shorter-term bans or whether he's deserving of a permanent ban, that, that sounds like a disaster of not escaping one person who already sucks up so much of the attention in, in sort of the platform governance discussion in general. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 10th, 2021. If you're listening to this show, you probably read a fair amount of news stories, and maybe even listened to a fair amount of podcast episodes, about the Facebook Oversight Board's recent ruling on the platform's decision to ban President Trump's account. The board temporarily allowed Facebook to keep Trump off the platform, but criticized the slapdash way Facebook made that call and provided a long list of recommendations for Facebook to respond to. Well, now Facebook has responded, announcing that it will ban Trump from the platform for two years. And though the response hasn't gotten as much coverage as the initial ruling, it's arguably more important for what it says about both Facebook and the Facebook Oversight Board's role in the future of content moderation. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information environment, I interviewed Lawfare Managing Editor Jacob Schultz and my usual co-host, Evelyn Dueck, about Facebook's response to the board. What did Facebook say in addition to its two-year Trump ban? Why is Evelyn so grumpy about it? And what's next for Facebook, the Oversight Board, and Trump himself? It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 10th. The Empire, Facebook, strikes back at the Oversight Board's Trump decision. The three of us are here to discuss Facebook's response to the Facebook Oversight Board's ruling on Donald Trump's Facebook account. Before we dive into the specifics, I think it's useful to establish what on earth that actually means. Evelyn, what what does it mean for Facebook to 
respond to an oversight board ruling? And how does that fit into the process? Like when the U.S. Supreme Court issues a ruling, we don't wait for the government to respond. So what is happening here? Yeah, great. So this is a this is an excellent place to start because I think it is one of the distinctive and interesting parts of this whole oversight board experiment. And to my mind, it's the most important part, but it's also often the most neglected part of the process. You know, when a decision comes down from from the oversight board, uh, there's lots of interest. People want to talk about it. And then when Facebook responds to them, you know, I write these fantastic blog posts and I don't think anyone reads them and no one no one calls me. So but I do think it is the most important part. Now, now, why is that? So the oversight board's power to bind Facebook is very, very limited. It's, it's limited to just the individual piece of content before the board itself. So literally one one post or one account. But it also has this power to make uh, non-binding policy recommendations, which is the much more substantive, sweeping part of the board's decisions. And we've also seen the board really try and maximize that part of the process and really push Facebook for systemic change through those recommendations. And Facebook doesn't have to follow those recommendations. The only obligation that it has is to respond within 30 days. And so it's in Facebook's responses that we find out whether it's going to play this game in good faith. You know, like there's the Facebook has no obligation to do anything other than say, hey, thanks for this recommendation. Uh, we're, we're very grateful, noted, and uh, we'll take it under consideration. But if Facebook really is invested in this oversight board experiment, you know, hopefully it will respond with something much more meaningful than that. And so it's in Facebook's responses that we really see whether this thing is actually going to have any practical ramifications. So we'll get to what Facebook said in a minute. But before I do that, I figure it's worth a a refresher on what the Oversight Board ruled. Uh, Our listeners probably remember that the Facebook Oversight Board allowed Facebook to keep Trump off the platform, uh, but they may have forgotten some of the nitty gritty of the board's decision. Jacob, could you walk us through what the board wrote in its initial ruling? Yeah, so the initial ruling was back on May 5th, which at this point feels like a very long time ago, but in actuality was only about 30 days ago. So it it being the board upheld Facebook's January 7th decision to freeze Trump's account. And it, it basically the way that it did it was it okayed the underlying rationale for deeming that Trump had violated Facebook's community standards in a way that necessitated adverse action against him, but it dinged Facebook for the type of penalty that it gave him. So listeners may remember that the penalty that Facebook gave to Trump, unlike Twitter, was that they suspended him, quote, indefinitely. And it was that indefinitely that the board took particular issue with, right? So you might, in your head, lump indefinitely in the same bucket as permanently or or some other thing in that general sense. But they're actually different things, right? And the board noted that Facebook usually will either ban someone permanently or ban someone for a predetermined period of time. So they'll say, you know, you're banned for six months or something. And here it reached for door number three, banned Trump for this vague indefinite window. And that's the thing that really draws the ire of the oversight board in their initial decision. So what they do is they kick Trump's account back to Facebook and say, look, you guys, First time around, you said indefinitely, that's not okay. Now you have six months to figure out what kind of punishment to give this guy, and you can't play this indefinite game again. You either have to ban him for a predetermined period of time or ban him permanently. And as is the case with all oversight board decisions, there is, in the in the initial decision, there's a lot of different reflections on, on the ways that the Trump 
suspension meshed with Facebook's community standards, its values, and also certain international human rights principles. So it's not just this top line takeaway. There's lots of sort of meditation and underlying logic behind it. And that's similar to, to every single case that the oversight board takes. And also, as is the case with all oversight board decisions, you get a bunch of backstory in the initial decision that I think some of which we'll come back to later about the exact ways in which Facebook handled Trump's account, not just in the discrete moment of January 7th, but in the time predating it, right? So there's that, and then there's a set of non-binding policy recommendations, which is exactly what Facebook is responding to here. So that's a mouthful, but the initial decision was itself a bit of a mouthful. So now that we have that context, Jacob, would you mind giving us the top line overview of just what Facebook wrote in its response to the board? Yeah, so there, there's sort of two different parts of the response. There's this super high top line, which is that Trump is banned from Facebook for two years, which is, I think, for all of Friday afternoon and Friday evening was the, the banner headline on the New York Times. So that's that's the real top line. And, and people will note pretty conspicuously takes us to 2023, which would theoretically leave time for the 2024 election cycle. So when that 2023 mark hits, Facebook will have to reevaluate you know, what to do with, with Trump's account. So in addition to that, there's a whole 20-page document where Facebook walks through the ways in which they are or aren't or have or haven't responded to the oversight board's various non-binding policy recommendations. So again, this is some version of this happens with every single decision that passes through the oversight board. The oversight board will, in addition to deciding on the narrow question of what to do with the account or the the post in question, they'll also outline all these things that they think that Facebook ought to change. And Facebook has a choice of, of how much they're going to take this advice, the way in which they're going to try and adopt it. But what they don't have a choice about is that they've committed themselves to responding within 30 days and, and giving a, a formal response to, to these recommendations. So that's what happened last Friday. And Facebook said in its response that it's, quote, committed to fully implementing 15 of the 19 responses. So in general, that's pretty good. And it also says that it's going to adopt one recommendation in part and is, is still working on taking a look at two recommendations and, and is going to not take action on one. So I think it's the type of situation where you you look at that and like from a pure box score perspective, it, it looks pretty good. But then, and Evelyn wrote a whole post on Lawfare devoted to this question, you, you start to look at the specific ways in which Facebook formulates its response and it starts to look pretty wishy-washy. There's a lot of gerunds, a lot of we're thinking about doing it and things of that nature that sort of make it, once you get beneath the hood, a, a bit more disappointing than the 15 out of 19 might seem. Yeah, this makes me really grumpy. Uh, Facebook got a lot of headlines of, you know, they're fully implementing 15 out of 19 uh, policy recommendations, which does sound really great. I went through and gave my own score and I got to eight where <laughs> I think that they were actually committing to taking some substantive steps that were different from, from what they were or actually improving something. Otherwise, you know, commitments were things like we will continue to act quickly on posts from influential users or we have always uh, prioritized safety. Or, you know, we will look for additional ways to incorporate feedback, which to my mind, Facebook giving itself a gold star for those uh, for those statements is is a little bit rich. So you give them a failing grade, Avalon. Yeah, I'm, I'm a harsh, uh, harsh taskmaster, I guess. There you go. So before we dig into the specifics of what you judged harshly, I do want to talk about the decision to ban Trump for two years, because I do think that it's, as you say, Evelyn, it is not the whole story, but it is part of the story. So Facebook uh, Vice President for Global Affairs, Nick Clegg, 
wrote in part of this response that Trump's actions merited the highest possible penalty under these new rules that Facebook has established. And that after these two years, so the platform is going to determine whether, and I quote, the risk to public safety has receded by, quote, evaluating external factors, including instances of violence, restrictions on peaceful assembly, and other markers of civil unrest. If we, so that's Facebook, determine that there is still a serious risk to public safety, we will extend the restriction for a set period of time and continue to reevaluate until the risk has receded. And Clegg also wrote that there will be a strict set of rapidly escalating sanctions if Trump continues to misbehave, possibly including a permanent ban from the platform. I'm curious what you both think about that. Does this make sense to you as a punishment? Jacob, why don't you weigh in first? I mean, the short answer is no. Like one of the first people to sort of flesh out full thoughts on this after Evelyn was Charlie Warzel, who used to write for the Times. And he he sort of noted that one way that you might think about what's going on here is that it, it's pretty not too harsh for Trump, right? This is a man who used his, his Facebook account to help, you know, continue to fan the flames of a live insurrection on, on the Capitol, right? So a two-year ban in which he may or may not get on after that. That that seems to me to be fairly lenient. But then I think the other way to think about it is from, from a pure public relations standpoint, it's really setting Facebook up for this sort of doom loop of continuous dredging of Trump's name through the news cycle, right? They The way that they've done this, they've created so many different mini news cycles around the way that they have handled Trump's account. And the decision here to punt for two years and to explicitly punt as Clegg said, for two years in a way that's going to have them set them up to, by design, be continuously reevaluating whether or not he's you know, deserving of these shorter term bans or that he's deserving of a permanent ban. That, that sounds like a disaster of not escaping one person who already sucks up so much of the attention in, in sort of the platform governance discussion in general, right? So there is some genuine, you know, public interest. Let's say that Trump is an actual presidential candidate again. I think it gets more complicated as to whether you, what you might think about a, a big social media company deciding that someone running for office of the president of the United States can't have an account. But at the same time, it's this bizarre situation where Facebook seems to be willingly locking itself into a situation where it's going to have this recurring question albeit on a longer term basis, but still that to me, that's, that does not seem like a particularly desirable place to end up. So as is my want in these circumstances, I tend to sort of attack the question from two different lenses. There's sort of the realist take or the formalist take, right? So if we adopt the realist take of like, let's assume that they sort of sat down and thought, what are we going to do with Trump? And 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 work back from there. Um, in some sense, you know, the board split the baby in its ruling by saying, we're, we're going to condone the original decision to ban, but we're not going to condone an indefinite ban. We're going to kick it back to Facebook. And I kind of feel like Facebook split the baby again and said, okay, we're going to ban him from like for quite a long time, but not indefinitely and we'll give him a chance to sort of learn from his mistakes. And so now we have this quartered baby and it's all a bit of a mess. And as Jacob said, we could be stuck in an infinite doom loop. In some sense, I feel like in this, still in the realist frame, that was sort of the only real option. Clegg, you know, in his post said that no matter what they did, it would be controversial and that's not wrong. And 
I think then moving sort of to the formalist take, let's let's assume that they actually sat down and thought, what are we going to write as a as a policy that would work in these circumstances more broadly? Like, let's like sort of abstract away from Trump's account more generally and think about what's a good policy for account suspensions for people in general. And I don't think it's a necessarily a bad policy to say, hey, if you're really, really naughty, we'll kick you off for two years, but then we will give you a chance to sort of learn from your mistakes, remediate, come back to this platform, you know, and then we will have these rapid escalating forms of sanctions if you show that you haven't learned and you're not going to behave better. And I do think in some sense that's not a bad policy to have, to give people a chance to, to get back on the platform. For a lot of people, it might be that access to Facebook is a really, really important thing and losing that for the rest of their lives uh, might not necessarily be a proportionate response, especially if they can show that you know they've, they've learned from their mistakes. I think a couple of things is that it's it's the policy is still very abstract. And so it's not necessarily clear what's going to happen in 2023. And it does give Facebook a lot of room to move, which I'm sure it finds quite nice. There seems to be a lot of confidence amongst the commentariat that Trump will just be banned in 2023. I mean, he's clearly showing no signs of remorse and intends to sort of keep pushing the same sort of disinformation he always has. And so there's this idea that, yeah, they'll put him back on the platform and then within two days, um, they'll have to boot him off. I'm not necessarily so sure about that. Um, I don't think we necessarily know what the politics will be in 2023. Content moderation sort of general expectations move really, really fast. Two years from now is sort of a lifetime in sort of content moderation land. If we look at what platforms were doing two years ago, the idea that they would have kicked a world leader off their platforms was pretty unimaginable back then. So who knows where we'll be in another two years from now. And it's also true that lying isn't generally against Facebook's community standards. So if he's just sort of sprouting crazy lies and and not inciting insurrection, you know, that might not necessarily get him banned. I mean, the other question, to sort of think about as well is sort of putting this more broadly. I, I think it's really interesting that the New York Times had a piece this week about how some of Trump's statements are still getting just as much engagement after the bans because people are reposting them and sharing them on social media platforms. And I think you talked about this, Quinta, in a piece that you wrote in The Atlantic where you sort of said, the ban from social media removed the man himself, but it hasn't changed the n- news and social media dynamics that helped him rise in the first place. And so I'm really curious for your take on, on this. Do you think it, it matters? Do you think it was a proportionate response. Uh, do you think we're going to see any change? I think it matters, if only because it creates, you know, a little more friction to Trump getting back into the conversation. And what we've seen from some of the bands is that, you know, that that friction actually makes somewhat of a difference some of the time. I'm definitely in the camp of people who wonder whether Facebook is going to or strongly suspect that Facebook is going to basically come up with a way to either just ban him outright when he gets back on the platform or alternatively just keep kicking the can down the road. (laughs) I think I I wrote something after uh, the oversight board handed down its decision, basically saying that it made perfect sense that the board, you know, sort of didn't really tell Facebook what to do, as you've written, Evelyn, but kind of passed it back to Facebook because the story of the Trump presidency is in a long way a story of sort of institutional failure where each institution says to itself, well, this is really bad, but you know, luckily somebody else will take care of it and just kind of punts. And so there was an appropriateness to the Facebook oversight board punting. And now there's also an appropriateness to Facebook itself punting uh, for future Facebook 
two years from now, it's sort of a, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? As you said, it would have been completely unthinkable two years ago for Facebook to ban Trump. And yet it actually strikes me that we're really not in a sort of significantly different posture in sort of the relationship of the media ecosystem to Trump than we were before, which you see when, you know, every reporter will post a screenshot of the nasty email that he sends out to his enormous list in order to get attention. So Evelyn, you wrote in Lawfare, as I've said, that the the suspension announcement is a it's a distraction from the disappointing nature of the rest of what Facebook had to say. I want to d- start digging into that now and talk about the other parts of Facebook's response. Why did you give them a failing grade? And how is it that they gave themselves such a higher grade? What's the what's the cause of the discrepancy there? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was disappointing that, as always, Trump sucks all the oxygen and all the attention away from this 20-page PDF at the, at the very end of the blog post of, of Nick Clegg's that, you know, to my mind's the most important part. And why won't anyone uh, talk to me about the wonky part of this process and just sort of talk about the, the, the Trump ban? But I do think that, you know, they didn't necessarily have to announce both on the same day. And it was interesting that they chose to do so. They had, for example, six months to decide what to do with Trump's account. I'm not surprised that they sort of wanted to rip the Band-Aid off and get it all out in, in in one go. And in part, it's not Facebook's fault that everyone was distracted by Trump. As you said, Quinta, it is like just part of our media ecosystem that we all focus on that. But I do think it worked out very nicely for Facebook that that was the way it went down. Because as I said, it didn't give people a lot of time or attention to pay to the details of those recommendations. And we got these nice headlines of 15 out of 19 implemented, but you know, not a lot of space left in that 800 word sort of newsflash for looking at the, the details of those. And the details are disappointing to my mind. So there were a lot of recommendations that, I, as I said earlier, Facebook gave itself a, a gold star for implementing, for fully implementing, um, when they were just sort of saying, well, we already do this. And to my mind, like the board is saying in its recommendation, it's saying, you know, you need to do better at this. And so for Facebook to say, we already do that is kind of taking the letter of the board's recommendation and maybe not the, the spirit of it. Things like, you know, yeah, we will continue to work to improve our proactive detection devices. And it's like, well, that's really something that you should be doing regardless of the board telling you that you need to work on your systems, right? We hope that you are continuously trying to improve. And I think it it sort of, as I went through them, there weren't a lot where I felt like Facebook really went above and beyond or did more than the bare minimum to meet the recommendation. I do think to a certain extent, that is a product of the way that the recommendations were framed. It is difficult, I can imagine, to come up with a concrete response to a statement like, Facebook should consider the context of posts by influential users, which it's like, well, yes, okay, we we will do that. I, I, I don't know how you tangibly say, here is a, a change that we're making, or here is a metric by which you can assess, are we assessing the context? Like, uh, of course, they have always said they assess the context and that they will continue to do so. So I do think that it is in part the sort of sweeping nature of the board's recommendations. And maybe we can come back to sort of how that uh, dynamic might have come up. But yes, overall, I don't feel like Facebook really was was striving to give us more than they needed to. 
One of the biggest pieces of news from the response is Facebook's statement that speech from politicians will no longer automatically be considered newsworthy, which might sound like a bit of a circular argument if you aren't uh, familiar with the sordid history of newsworthiness in the Facebook context. Jacob, could you explain what that policy was and why this change is such a big deal? Yeah, so newsworthiness is, I think the way to think about it is that it's an exemption from Facebook's community standards, right? So Facebook operates according to these standards, and it's, at least they say it's by these standards that they determine when to take adverse action against an individual user or against a piece of content. And right, so according to the newsworthiness policy, if it's in the general interest for something or someone to stay on Facebook, then there's an exemption for that, right? There's a carve out from the normal rules that something is given greater leeway if it has this this news value is is probably the way to think about it. And as you say, there there used to be a blanket, effectively a blanket application of this newsworthiness policy to politicians, right? So what that means is if you look on Facebook, so Facebook has become like other platforms, increasingly more aggressive in labeling things, right? So labeling things as you know misinformation or as something like that, right? And the, the newsworthiness policy means that those labels have seldom gone to politicians, post by politicians, right? And so I think the change is a big deal for two separate reasons that are related to one another. So one is that I think there's one thing to have a separate process for certain users, which I think is something that we will talk about later in this episode. But it's another thing to have basically a different set of rules for different users. And I think there's there's something that that strikes many people as, as particularly odious of having effectively two different rule systems for, for people depending on their stature and their political position. And the second reason is that it's, it's just the outcomes of this have become increasingly unpopular, right? And Trump's presidency is a great way of highlighting if you have some policy that that offers exemptions for political speech president trump is a is a great vehicle for people to see all the things that they don't like about that so and it's not just trump it's it's other world leaders and and politicians of of all colors but it it really has i think there are lots of details of facebook policies that the people are sort of opaquely unhappy with but i think this is over you know some duration of time become one that people have become specifically upset with Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. 
it was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
So when you put it like that, it makes it sound like getting rid of the exemption is a good thing. But Evelyn, you were also not impressed by this announcement. Why not? <laughs> I'm such a Debbie Downer this episode. I was grumpy on Friday. Okay, so l- let me take each of those pieces in turn about the is it good and I wasn't impressed with the announcement. The, the Is it a good thing? And I, I just want to pause on this for a moment because it's sort of become this the, the sort of narrative is Facebook held on to this like really unpopular and ridiculous standard for so long um, and it's finally removed it. Actually, I was one of the few people that for, for a long time was and, and sort of remains generally in favor of the policy or the idea that, you know, it is important to hear what your elective representatives say and that that remains true, even if or perhaps especially when the, the, those things are repugnant. And so, you know, even as this policy became uh, even more and more unpopular and controversial, I still do think there is a, is a grain of, of truth in that. And I also don't think we're going to lose that that part of the policy, but we'll come back to that in a second. It is worth noting, for example, that Twitter still has this policy. It is engaging in a public feedback and comment process on that now, but currently Twitter has a public interest policy that operates very much like Facebook's uh, newsworthiness standard did. And by the way, the media also reports on a bunch of these statements that are considered repugnant and violating community standards. Um, So the professionals also think that when the world leader says them, there's something newsworthiness about it. But Facebook and and Twitter's policy as well always had an exception for incitement to violence, which I also highly agree with. It doesn't matter how newsworthy it is if it might incite, you know, violence um, or, or some sort of dangerous speech. But then... If that exception already existed, what difference does this change make now? And I'm not sure that the change that Facebook has announced is more than a change in form. I think in substance, we might find ourselves in a very similar place. So I think the announcement is not a big deal and not a surprise because I think Facebook had basically no choice but to say it was removing its newsworthiness policy after the board's announcement. The board was pretty much as clear as it could be, although I mean, somewhat with a caveat that we can maybe come back to, but it literally said Facebook needs to treat all users alike. So if Facebook could either accept that recommendation or give the board a big middle finger, like there was no other option for it. And given the amount of money and time it's invested in this oversight board process, I don't really think it had any option but to inform at least accept the board's recommendations. But many of the considerations that came into play under the newsworthiness policy still come into play in Facebook's new policy. So it, for example, will consider the importance of political speech. And indeed, the board told it that it should also still consider the importance of political speech. Now, often the speech of politicians will be political speech. That's one of the areas where it will come in. Why also do I think it might not make much substantive difference? And that's because Facebook itself told us that the newsworthiness policy didn't make much substantive difference in its treatment of Trump. So they had said uh, to the oversight board in its submissions before the Trump decision that they had never applied the newsworthiness policy to Trump. Now, in its responses on on Friday, uh, it corrected itself and said, oh no, actually, whoops, Um, we discovered that we had applied it once to one video. But even so, okay, let's say they still applied it once. That's nothing. And it wasn't even one of the videos that had caused most of the controversy over Facebook's treatment of Trump over the last few years. So if you take them at their word, and I'm really not sure that we should take them at their word, that they hadn't really applied the newsworthiness policy in their consideration of Trump, if we take them at their word, it made basically no difference 
to how Facebook moderated Trump's account over the past few years. And so why would we think that it would make any other difference going forward? So the real question is, does this announcement reflect a change in ethos, a change in sort of culture from Facebook about how it's going to moderate politicians? Or have they just sort of changed the wording a little bit to this now sort of amorphous, multifactorial balancing test that still gives them plenty of room to move um, and they'll just keep applying in the same way that they did before? One last point that I want to make is that Facebook still hasn't gotten rid of the policy that it won't fact check politicians. And that is often the most controversial part of the way it treats politicians. Uh, you know, this is the we don't want to arbitrate truth and in politics, and so we won't subject politicians opposed to fact checking. And I just I, I note that, that sure that doesn't come in under the newsworthiness policy, but that is by definition treating politicians differently to every other user on the platform that might be subject to a fact check. And so I think, again, this is an area where Facebook was sort of sticking to the letter of the board's recommendation, but there's sort of, a, a, it hasn't really taken the spirit of that recommendation to its fullest extent. I think when you listen to a lot of what Evelyn's saying, one thing that is notable about this case and about the, the general fate of Trump's various social media accounts is the level of interest that the way that these companies handle his accounts garnered among other world leaders. So that's that includes people like Angela Merkel and people like that, but it also includes, you know, other world leaders who have maybe more of a penchant for for more Trumpian type posting. And right, I think the concern among those people is obviously in some sense the narrow question of how exactly Facebook and the oversight board are going to parse out what to do with Trump's status as a Facebook user. But the real concern, I think, from those folks and also from people who have general anxieties about the ways that, that Facebook may or may not approach political leaders is that it's it's things like this, right? It's There's the top line takeaway, but the real, I think, substantive things that, that tend to worry people in the long term are also these questions of more narrow Facebook policies, not just the the big top line, what happens to Trump. And just to sort of extend on that, I think that's a, a really great and important point, Jacob, because it's always something that I'm really grumpy about when we talk about the Trump decision and, and, and Donald Trump and the world leader policy as we focus on Trump. But actually what was important here was the policy and the general policy that will apply to all world leaders for all time as long as there is a Facebook. And that's why, you know, given that the policy that it's come up with is still pretty indeterminate and doesn't really bind Facebook's hands, the question is, has this reflected a change in culture? and a change in the general approach beyond the actual words. And so are we going to sort of start seeing mass deplatformings of, you know, people have floated names like Prime Minister Modi in India or Duterte in the Philippines, or, you know, or, you know, there's an Australian politician that, that likes to, to sprout mis and disinformation. Those are the questions that I think are really important going forward. And we're just going to have to wait and see how Facebook approaches that now. So three more aspects of Facebook's response that I want to make sure we get to. So first is the cross-check system. Second is the strike system. And third is uh, how Facebook responded to the board's request that it assess its own role in the Capitol riot. So let's start with the cross-check system. Evelyn, can you explain just what that is um, and how Facebook responded to the board's recommendation on it? 
Okay, Debbie Downer continues. This one's a really bad look for Facebook, in my opinion. So the cross-check system is, Facebook told the Oversight Board uh, in its submissions, a system of review for some high-profile accounts and for high-visibility content. And what it means is simply that our review teams will assess this content multiple times. And that all sounds fine, right? Like, yes, maybe for high-profile accounts and high-visibility content, you would want people to sort of double check that. We know that content moderation makes mistakes all the time. So for really consequential decisions, it would be good to get them right. The problem is that you need to pair that with stories that have come out over the years about how higher-ups in Facebook that are outside the normal policy enforcement teams uh, and sort of part of their global public policy and lobbying teams have interfered with decisions to protect high-profile accounts. Often on the conservative side, there's been reporting about this in the Washington Post and BuzzFeed in particular, about Breitbart, Turning Point USA, and like Diamond and Silk, where the, the there were content moderation decisions taken against them and they got uh, nixed. The board asked for further details about this cross-check process, which Facebook had flagged as something that it applied to Trump, for example. And the update that Facebook gave in its responses, uh, which it considers fully implementing the board's recommendations, is to basically say, oh, the the cross-check process? Um, That's where we send a decision to be cross-checked. Next question, right? Like, it just basically doesn't give any further details about who is involved in this cross-check process, who does it consider a high-profile user or high-visibility content, how often does the cross-check process result in a change. So a cross-check process isn't inherently sinister, It, it makes sense, but when you sort of put it in that broader context and the sort of very obfuscatory response from Facebook, it really doesn't look great. And and there's two other reasons to be concerned. The first is that Facebook said to the board, because the board asked, can you tell us the error rate? How many times you overturn things when you submit it to cross-check? And Facebook said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. Um, It's not feasible to track that data. But on the other hand, it also said that it's a very small number of decisions that it submits to cross-check. So there's something a bit sort of uncomfortable there. Um, And the second is that in the Trump decision, Facebook told the board that there were 20 pieces of content from Trump that had originally been flagged as violating the rules, but then were ultimately determined not to be violations. And that presumably was part of the cross-check process. Now, 20 pieces of content is a lot um, of, of, of times. And and so that suggests one of two outcomes. Either the cross-check system is finding a lot of mistakes uh, on the front line because the frontline systems are really, really bad, or the cross-check process uh, is overly aggressive in correcting quote-unquote errors uh, for certain users. And neither of those outcomes is a good outcome from Facebook. And I think uh, Facebook really whiffed on uh, giving more details on what was going on here. All right. So that is the cross-check system. What about the strike system? Evelyn, again, what is it and uh, how did Facebook respond to the board's recommendation? Yeah, so I actually think this is probably the most positive part of Facebook's responses and was a genuinely good outcome. I was maybe a little bit grumpy about it in my post on Friday, but uh, taking a step back and, you know, having the cool, cooling off period of the weekend, I do think this is a this is progress. So the strike system is 
is a good thing. It's the idea that, you know, if you violate the rules, you don't immediately lose your account. Um, but if you persistently violate Facebook's rules, you're sort of showing that you're a bad actor. And if you've been given lots and lots of warnings, at some point, the, the penalties get more and more severe until you lose the account. The problem was um, one of the complaints that the board made was that users don't know how this works and they can't sort of adjust their behavior if they don't have uh, adequate notice of what the strike system is. We sort of generally knew that Facebook had one, um, but we didn't know the details of it. And now, and now they've published their full strike system policy for when it will restrict accounts. So it's there and it's pretty detailed. You know, one one strike, nothing happens. Two strikes, you get a one day restriction. Three, three days, four, seven days, and so on and so forth. So that, you know, you have time to learn. Uh, and I think that makes sense. A lot of people violate rules on social media platforms just because they don't know about them. Uh, they don't know. <laughs> I think a surprising number of users don't even like know that there are community standards at all uh, until they run headfirst into one. So it makes sense not to ban them completely for an honest mistake. But if, you know, if we've got to five or more strikes, it might not be such an honest mistake anymore. And that's when restrictions start applying. One of the things I was grumpy about in my post on Friday was there are a lot of mays and, um, you know, Facebook may do this. They may restrict your account. They may apply restrictions on your Facebook live access. And I, I think in retrospect, I shouldn't have been so harsh about that, given that, yeah, it does make sense that in certain cases they might need to make exceptions. It would have been good, I think, to just give a little bit more detail about when those exceptions might apply, rather than it kind of sounding like, you know, if we feel like it. I think the, the problem is sort of the underlying distrust of Facebook in general, not the word may. Um, it's that we don't really trust Facebook to be applying these rules consistently in general because of experience. Whereas if we sort of had more trust, then maybe I wouldn't have been so annoyed at how many maze there were in this policy. Yeah, so I think when when I look at everything that happened through the exchange between the oversight board and Facebook, the cross-check revelation and then the, the the dialogue about the strikes are actually two places where I see real contribution from the oversight board in ways that are actually pretty consistent with with things that have done in in other cases. So on the cross-check issue, I agree with Evelyn that the resolution of the issue from Facebook and their response to the oversight board is is pretty disappointing and sort of a nothing burger. But the fact that we know about the cross-check system and have any sort of fleshed out and official version of what's going on is is purely thanks to the exercise of the oversight board, right? So when the oversight board does its decisions, part of the work is to figure out this sort of internal Facebook deliberations that led to something happening. And that's exactly what's what, what happened in the case of the, the cross-check system through the process of of dialoguing with Facebook and figuring out what happened to Trump's account and, and how it was handled. That's how that surfaced and, and became public information. So I do think that that's a service in of itself, irrespective of, of how Facebook responds. And, and on the strike system, one of the things that that I've really noticed throughout, at this point, a, a lot of different oversight board decisions is that something that the oversight board constantly is pushing Facebook to do in a from a policy recommendation standpoint is to clarify to users when they have taken you know adverse action against them and what the basis for that adverse action is. And I think there's a tendency to to look at these things and be like, oh, like not really sure what happened, but at least 
sort of seeing the consistency of of how the board handled this case with with the ways that they've handled other cases, I think really points to some of the value add, even if Facebook isn't always cooperative in a specific sense. All right. So the last aspect of Facebook's response I wanted to make sure we talked about is the platform's refusal to, per the board's recommendation, conduct a self-assessment regarding its role in potentially facilitating the Capitol riot. Facebook essentially said, thanks, but no thanks. And it announced that it was instead developing, and I quote, a new research partnership with nearly 20 outside academics to look specifically at the role Facebook and Instagram played in the 2020 U.S. election. The argument seems to be that because these researchers are independent, they're actually better positioned to carry out a a frank assessment. Evelyn, I'm curious what you make of this argument. Is there anything to Facebook's claim here about independence, or are they just trying to get themselves off the hook? Yeah, so my reaction to that is, yes, it is great that you've got these independent researchers doing research on your platform, and I'm really happy that you've given them a bit more data as a result of this recommendation, but why not both meme, right? Like, why don't we both have these independent researchers do analysis of the data that, you, that you're that you providing them, and also you do some reflection on your, your role here? I it's hard to tell a little bit what the ambit of that relationship is between those researchers. It seems to be primarily experimental, like the, the the researchers can give different users different experimental conditions and see how they react to certain different kinds of feeds and things like that. So it's not clear to me that that relationship, which is great. I'm, I'm really happy that Facebook is providing these researchers with access, is actually targeted at what the board was concerned with here, which was very specifically how did Facebook control contribute to the delegitimization narrative and then consequently the the January 6th riot and Facebook like really firmly sort of pushed back on this it wasn't timid about it you know it said the responsibility for January 6 2021 lies with the insurrectionists and those who encourage them right like it was saying not our problem not our fault And that sort of reflects the very strident tone that executives have taken about this generally. There's this famous or now infamous clip from Sheryl Sandberg uh, in an interview shortly after January 6th that sort of said something like, our platform didn't really play a role in the lead up to that at all, uh, which is now sort of the 2020 version of the infamous comment from Mark Zuckerberg after the 2016 election, where he said, the idea that um, fake news on Facebook had any role in the election is a laughable idea, right? Um, Which obviously came back to bite him. And, you know, my my response to that is like, of course, Facebook is not solely or perhaps even primarily responsible for what happened at the Capitol. There are a lot of institutions and actors and, and, and people that encourage that, that were not Facebook and need to take responsibility. But that doesn't also mean that Facebook should take responsibility for its role and investigate the way that it could, you know, improve on itself in future. It's worth saying that we do create very bad transparency incentives here that I can understand why Facebook might not want to do this when you know, one of the other comments from Nick Clegg or other Facebook executives on Friday was, we're the only platform that has held itself so accountable. And in, in a sense, that's still true. Even though it didn't do this report, There, we don't know anything about what YouTube is doing about Trump's account or more generally about its role in the the Stop the Steal campaign. 
And so we do create an, a, an incentive where the more transparency you give, you know, we're doing this whole episode about Facebook's flaws here because Facebook has engaged in this process of review and provided this information to this oversight board. And so I can slam them about the cross-check process, which as Jacob said, it is great that, that we have at least more information about that as a result of this process. And, and similarly, you know, there was a, a BuzzFeed article about a report that Facebook has done internally about its role and, and the role of platform design in the lead up to January 6. And it was sort of phrased as a very damning indictment on Facebook because some of the quotes from this report were pretty damning. But also, in a sense, it's really it's good that Facebook had this report and was doing this work. And, and we should be happy about that. So what I don't understand then is, you know, it's it's done the bulk of the work. Uh, why don't you put it out there and, and let it be an open reflection so that we can see that and lead from the front and then we can put, you know, more pressure on the other platforms to do the same. It strikes me that there's a an odd situation we're in now where we expect platforms to, you know, hold themselves accountable for their role in the riot. Like we're mad when Sheryl Sandberg says that. We're mad when Facebook comes out and says, oh, actually, no, we we won't be doing a public report. At the same time, you know, other institutions, including, for example, the Congress of the United States, have proven themselves unwilling to look into their hearts and see what role they played. We're recording this about a week after the Senate failed to authorize a commission, an independent commission, investigating the January 6th riot. So on the one hand, you can say, well, Facebook is actually doing better than, you know, certain Republican senators. On the other hand, isn't it a bit odd that we expect more from Facebook than from a house of the U.S. Congress? Jacob, I'm, I'm curious what you think here. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, to me, maybe the the greatest parallel between the way that Facebook handled that particular policy recommendation from the Oversight Board and just the general apathy of in, in Congress to deal with these things is that the preferred means through which like major institutional actors want to think about after the fact accountability for what happened on January sixth is is by doing it in very sort of contained. Forum. So in, in the case of the Senate, maybe that's a Senate hearing with Chris Ray, where you have this bizarre situation with Republican senators who were supportive of, of the Stop the Steal rally, but then are up there questioning Chris Ray about very granular questions of like the Norfolk memo and super small details of, of how the FBI handled what happened. And then in the context of Facebook, you, you have this situation where like, okay, they're they're fine with these researchers digging in and, and doing some some investigating as to what happened. But in both cases, there's this complete reluctance to do any sort of public-facing introspection about bad behavior or sort of structural problems that might have led to this happening, right? It's it's this desire to funnel all sorts of accountability efforts to, to the most narrow and the most granular or, or the most sort of cabined ways of thinking about what happened on the 6th as opposed to doing anything that requires a broader sort of self-public denunciation in some ways. And, and look, that's understandable. I would say from from Facebook's perspective, it's maybe a bit less defensible in the sense that the Senate has to contend with like massive partisan gridlock and you know there's 100 senators and moving things through the Senate, regardless of what they are about, is like the world's most painful and 
unsuccessful effort every time. Whereas Facebook at the policy level, sure, there's I'm sure there's some internal dissent always about what to do. But at the end of the day, there's no Senate of Facebook, right? They, they have effectively unilateral authority to do what they want. So on the one hand, like it's weird and it's another instance of people, I think people who get mad at Facebook without thinking about what's happening in the Senate, it's another instance of just blaming the platforms for broader institutional political failure. But on the other hand, like I do get it. Quinta, what do you think? I don't know. This is something that you've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, it's, I, I should have known when I, I asked such a leading question that it would be passed back to me. I, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I think the way that I've come to think of this is in the same way as when we talk about content moderation deeper in the stack, right? Where there's kind of a, a you end up with these setups where, you know, the the platform, the social media platform like Gab, say, won't moderate content that is hateful or violent in some way because because they won't moderate it gets pushed down all the way to you know the the hosting service right or amazon web services or cloudflare and then you end up in a circumstance where this service that you don't think of as being a content moderator is actually the only actor in this particular circumstance that's willing to say actually you know i don't think we should have Nazis posting about how they want to shoot up a synagogue on the internet. Like, we actually really don't want that here. And it's absurd, but on the other hand, no one else is doing it. And that's kind of how I feel about Facebook, right? Where the the sort of the role of institutional responsibility got pushed down or over or something like that. The stack of, I guess, governing institutions and so it is weird that Facebook is in this position of kind of being an entity that can create a record about what happened here and sort of hold some entity responsible. But on the other hand, you know, that is the weird world in which we live. So I, you know, I guess I'm sympathetic to Facebook, as strange as that sounds for the position that they're in. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like them's the breaks. Like, here we are. Now is your chance. Yeah, I really agree with with both of you. First, Jacob, that you know we often ask content moderation to solve a whole bunch of societal problems that it's not necessarily clear to me it can solve because it's the thing that's right in front of us and it seems like a fairly easy fix. Like if we'd just taken down a few more posts, January six wouldn't have happened. But but that's obviously not the case. But at the same time, when no one else is stepping up, exactly as you say, Quinta, it, it comes down to platforms like, well, it's better than nothing. Um, so we might as well content moderate a bit if no one else is doing anything. I think your point about the other platforms, the free speech platforms is really important and insightful too. It's, it's very interesting. No one has any good ideas about what to do about them. Um, obviously, they can't be regulated to you know force them to take down fake news or disinformation or you know lies um, because of that pesky first amendment as you like to call it quinta and at the same time we, we know that they played a, a large role in sort of the lead up to the insurrection and we know for example today Grafica released a report saying that there's um, suspected Russian information operations on parlor and gab um, and they're just not doing anything about it you know they, they don't they don't care and so we put a lot of sort of pressure on Facebook and, and Twitter in part because they're responsive and they do respond to that public pressure and no one has an idea of what we should do when that public pressure doesn't work. So I want to close by asking you both sort of where we go from here. 
we've sort of already touched on the question of what happens two years from now, but you know, how long until another world leader is slapped with a ban from Facebook under these new policies? How are these policies and how is the Facebook Oversight Board going to develop, do you think? And how does that change or not change Facebook's position in relation to other platforms like Twitter, say, which, you know, merrily banned Trump and sort of hasn't had any of this agonizing over it? Just it seems like there's there's an enormous amount of landscape stretching out ahead of us. Um, And I'm curious for both of your thoughts about what that might look like. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that strikes me, as you said, is that Twitter, which banned Trump almost immediately by way of a extremely dry and technocratic blog post followed up by a Twitter thread from Jack Dorsey in which he professed his anguish at having to ban Trump, but affirmed that it was the right thing to do and then nothing else, right? So in reality, recently at least, it's been Twitter that's been fighting the major battles with world leaders, right? Twitter is currently locked in a pretty interesting and extremely consequential fight with the Indian government over the way that it handled tweets from members of of the BJP, which is India's ruling party. And Twitter also just got banned from the entire country of Nigeria after it took adverse action against the the president of Nigeria's Twitter account. And on the one hand, I think it's a testament to what happens when you sort of extricate yourself from Trump. You can put your big platform governance battle chips into what I would probably consider to be more important free speech battles. But on the other hand, I think there's a way in which Twitter's behavior, because there is no oversight board and because they've opted for this model of of governance for, for world leaders and for everyone else that does not have this second layer of review and doesn't have the same sort of post hoc guardrails in place that Facebook does. And obviously, the oversight board takes effectively 0.000001% of all cases. But I, the fact that it exists and, and the fact that it They've been willing to use it for for even cases as high profile as this, I think is a in some ways is is reassuring in the sense that you have a sense of more of an inside view of how Facebook handles world leaders' accounts and what the internal process is that they dealt with Trump. And there's a public dialogue about the way that they handle these cases in a way that there just really isn't for other platforms. And I'll give a shout out to YouTube, like Evelyn is is very good at doing. Like you know, we Whoop. have we have no idea what the thinking behind YouTube's banning of Trump is or going or what even the fate of Trump's YouTube account is going to be, right? And I think there is this weird incentive structure in place where it's sort of a bummer for Facebook that they they created this unrelenting five-month news cycle about the way that they're going to handle Trump's Facebook account when their ban wasn't even really all that big of a deal in the first place because everyone cared about Twitter. And meanwhile, the Twitter public policy team just has sort of been able to liberate themselves from this question. But the, the sort of long-term downside of that is that there isn't the same sort of structure in place. And, and whether or not you think the oversight board has real bite. I, I think that, that that is a real meaningful difference that has consequences. I do want to finish on a bit more of a positive note, given that I've been such a uh, a negative Nancy this entire time. I was I think I was really grumpy on Friday because I feel like 
we went through this entire process, you know, from January 7 or 8 or whatever it is, and now it's, you know, five months later. And I'm not sure what we got out of it apart from a slightly more transparent strike system. And that feels like such a hullabaloo and so many media circuses for what seems like a sort of really incremental improvement. And I think I was just a bit bummed about that. I thought maybe this could have been a moment where the public pressure was so intense and that that we could have seen more. But I do think that the board experiment more generally is showing promise. And I think even a lot of skeptics, I was on a panel the other day with people who were generally very skeptical starting, sort of admitting that there does seem to have been some 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 positive impact here. And one of them is bringing attention to other areas of the world where it's picking up cases, um, places like India, um, where it's saying, hey, Facebook, you should really translate your content moderation standards into Punjabi because there's millions of users that speak that, which again, we shouldn't need an oversight board to to recommend but apparently we do and i think that's a really positive step forward and like like we said you know how this creates pressure for other world leaders is also going to be a really interesting and important question that the board is helping to ventilate. I think that this public discussion of content moderation in general is getting more informed as a result of this process. And as Jacob said before, the information forcing mechanism of the board is really working quite well. I'm learning a lot and I think that's really, really good. Part of me thinks and hopes that the Trump case was just a special case, right? The the board wanted to come in, it wanted to split the baby and not get into too much political trouble, but it also wanted to make these huge sweeping statements about what Facebook needed to do better. And then Facebook also wanted to sort of cover its ass and, and get good headlines because there was so much attention on it. And hopefully there will be less of that grandstanding in future cases and hopefully the the dialogue between the two parties will get better as they'll learn like that the board will learn how to give more specific recommendations and think more thoughtfully about maybe what its role should be and and facebook sort of starts to take those on more seriously so i do kind of think maybe this was just an exceptional moment and that there's still a lot of 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 good things in in my opinion coming out of this experiment all right we will leave it there jacob evelyn thank you so much Thank you, Quinta. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.